1: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I'm joined today by my guest, Hugh Hodges. Hugh teaches in the Cultural Studies Department at Trent University and has written extensively on African and West Indian music, poetry, and fiction. His latest book is The Fascist Groove Thing, A History of Thatcher's Britain and 21 Mixtapes, and is published by PM Press. Hugh, thank you so much for joining me today. a oh, pleasure, thanks for the invitation. So first things first, can
1: you just tell us what your book is about? Well, um... The the title is is somewhat self explanatory. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a history of Thatcher's Britain, uh, built out of twenty one mixtapes um, based on popular music of the time.
2: So there's a lot to cover with both the music and the history, and let alone just one of those subjects. So there's some issues and artists that we'll discuss, but we won't explore everything here. So first, just for some context, could you briefly give us some? Um, history as to who Margaret Thatcher was and what her premiership represented.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, So Margaret Thatcher was uh, the leader of a conservative party, which had, up until um, the time she took over as leader of the party, had been swapping roles with the Labor Party in government, out of government, in government, out of government for a couple of decades. And both parties were more or less centrist uh, on various core principles. They actually agreed. There were differences, of course. But um, Thatcher's arrival as a, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party represented, if not a radicalizing of the party, at least a refocusing of it um, towards neoliberalism and latterly social conservatism. She won the 1979 election for the Conservative Party very, very handily, uh, defeating a Labour Party that had just gone through uh, a very bad winter, um, axiomatically known the, as the winter of discontent, uh, where any number of strikes happened. Um, the gu- the country seemed to be in total disarray. Unemployment was on the rise. Uh, the... The, the the British public were looking for people to blame for this, so they were happy to blame the unions and immigrants um, and various other uh, groups who came to mind. Thatcher was more than happy to accommodate them uh, by uh, shifting the blame there as well. And uh, so she arrived in 1979 with something of a landslide victory for the Conservatives and proceeded to uh, dismantle The welfare state that had been in place since uh, the end of World War II, essentially.
2: So the really fascinating aspect about your book is that you contextualize this history through mixtapes, and you you document approximately 400 songs, which is rather impressive, because a lot of these music books that contextualize history are often through a single album, band, discography, or even genre, and this is a very... A unique approach to that. Why did you use
1: this approach? Well, I didn't mean to. Uh, when I s- set out, it w- was going to be much more a- along the lines of what you've just described. Um, I had wanted to pick maybe one song as a way to talk about the Falklands War and one song to talk about the miners' strike and one song to uh, talk about unemployment. And I very quickly realized that the point wasn't that Half a dozen people had written interesting songs. The point really was that hundreds and hundreds of songs uh, talking about Thatcher's Britain had been written. And um, uh, at that point, uh, the whole approach to the thing changed where I, I realized I was not going to be able to do sort of in-depth literary analysis or even a sociological analysis of, of each song. Um, and the, the whole project flipped. So that in, instead of it being a, a, a study of these songs, the songs became a study of the history that they were uh, responding to. So yes, um, uh, as, as you say, uh, o- almost exactly upside down from the way most people have uh, approached popular music in this period.
2: Well, I, I think it's a very pathbreaking breaking um, way to write about that, because... Um, What's really impressive is not just the number of it, but there's a variety, a huge variety of songs of just different subjects, um, different meanings, different genres. And I'm sure a lot of these songs you came across during your youth and, and coming of age and were part of uh, who you are growing up. But were, how did you come across songs that you didn't quite necessarily know that might have come through um, as you were writing the book?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I- uh, as you said, a lot of this stuff is um, uh, music that that was part of my my childhood, my adolescence. Uh, really, the starting place was uh, the Clash and Elvis Costello and the Sex Pistols and, and various other um, bands uh, that, that that I listened to as, as a kid. Um, I was listening to your uh, podcast with uh, Gregor Gall, and he uh, was talking about how when he was a kid, he wasn't so much a socialist as a clashist, uh, which is, I, I love that phrase because I, I can fully identify with that. There, there was a time when literally everything I knew about the Spanish Civil War, for example, was from the clash on Spanish bombs. Uh, And even longer, where everything I knew about the Spanish Civil War was because that song had made me go and look stuff up. So um, uh, quite a lot of the material in this book uh, is stuff I grew up with and that really did shape me as a teenager. Um, But the collecting of uh, the 400 songs here really was partly a process of um, moving from one thing to the next. One, you know, one, Academic research goes this way. You 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 go to the library to get book A, and the, the, the book right next to it, it turns out to be the one you actually want. And then the back of that, there's a bibliography that sends you off to half a dozen more books. Uh, so th- there was some of that. Uh, some of it was once you tell people you're doing a project like this, they have suggestions for you. Uh, some of it was just browsing record stores. Uh, writing this book gave me a spectacular excuse to uh, rebuild the record collection I had when I was a kid um, and sold in the mid-80s to, to buy paint for art school, um, but then to go far, far beyond that and accumulate all kinds of things that that I either uh, never saw or never considered as a teenager. It was very important to me through the whole project that it not just be a book about political punk. That is sort of the obvious place to go when you're thinking about popular music and political commentary in in the 1980s. But part of the point I wanted to make was that it was popular music quite broadly that felt it had something to say about uh, Thatcher and about unemployment, about war about nukes so um, I, I wound up uh, listening to very closely listening to a lot of music that I would have dis- that I did dismiss uh, as a as a teenager. Um, the House Martins for example were, were a band that just went completely by me uh, when I was when I was 15 16 uh, but uh, uh, revisiting them, for this project, uh, I, I have come to appreciate uh, really quite profoundly.
2: That clashes comment is so funny to me because uh, it's it's really amazing how just through musical osmosis we get introduced to like a lot of ideas and historical context. And I remember in high school um, going going through a big Clash phase myself, and in my history class, dropping Boer War, you know. And if anyone had pressed me on any of that, I would never been able to tell you what that was, but because I heard it uh, on the track, the leader, you know, it was something that like, Oh, you know, no one's going to be able to name check this for me, but um, that that's, that's so funny. Um, and that variety and not focusing just on the punk is really fascinating because one thing that's really interesting about your book is that these songs either address Thatcher or the results of her policies, but not always the same ideas. And we often find that even amongst like broadly shared ideals within a group there's you know that narcissism of small differences and they seem some similar in a general sense but represent these different philosophies were you surprised to find that out and how did it influence your approach to
1: writing the book I from the as soon as I realized that this was going to be a book about hundreds of songs I wanted to make sure I didn't create some kind of Procrustean bed where all of these songs somehow had to be speaking the same language and sharing some kind of coherent ideology. Um, It was very important to me to communicate that, um, first, that, that there was plenty of disagreement about the implications of what Thatcher was doing and the consequences of what Thatcher was doing. But also that the bands themselves were very rarely coming at this from some ideologically fully worked out position. There were a few bands like the Redskins, who were members of the Socialist Workers Party, um, a few other bands with very, very clear anarchist principles. But mostly these these were kids who were just reacting to uh, their, the, the political environment and many of them reacting based on the same kind of um, much more poetic than uh, uh, clearly political reaction to, say, The Clash. Um, uh, Joe Strummel was um, you know, much more a poet than a politician, and his, his songs uh, communicate poetically rather than uh, by clearly laying out an ideology. So many of these uh, songs in this book were written by people who, like me, were inspired by the Clash and confused by the Clash. Uh, had, got some some sense of um, that. Th- th- there's an ideology at work here. There's there's something to be said. There are principles involved. Um, and singing about it, writing about it, is with one way to think through it. So a lot of the, the songs in this book are the kids thinking through their situation. So I didn't want to uh, uh, pretend that they all fit into some kind of uh, clear theory.
2: So I really appreciate you breaking down you know, the concept behind the book and the motivations behind it, because I think that context is very interesting. Um, so now I want to start going into some of that music and that history. Your book opens setting the scene in March 1981. Can you share with us what was happening at Thatcher's Britain at that time?
1: So I picked I picked March 1981 uh, simply because that's when the fascist groove thing, or fascist groove thing, we don't need this fascist groove thing, by uh, Heaven 17 was released. Um, and I'd already picked the title at that point and was, was stuck on it and um, uh, thought I'd better make a point of it. So, 1981. Thatcher had been in power for a couple of years. Uh, she had already begun the process of dismantling, as I said, dismantling the welfare state, dismantling the entire apparatus of post-war Britain. In many ways, um, uh, the, the years uh, between the Second World War and uh, the end of the seventies were characterised by the creation of the National Health Service. Uh, the nationalization of the steel industry, the automobile industry, the coal mining industry, uh, the aerospace industry, they, they were all um, uh, the commonwealth of the British people. And Thatcher's brand of conservatism looked at this and saw all of these industries that were, on the face of it at least, unprofitable because they provided employment uh to people who would otherwise have been uh on welfare and said well that's that's just that's just not right um we don't owe anybody a living so uh by 1981 uh, thatcher had already gone to war with the uh, steelworkers union and uh effectively won that fight uh she was preparing for a battle with the coal miners, that would come in 1984, 1985. Uh, 81 was a year short of uh, the Falklands War. I'll come back. We'll come back to that. Uh, 1981, uh, unemployment in Britain had uh, peaked at something like three million and was still on the rise, mainly because. Uh, Thatcher's uh, restructuring of the British economy meant a very rapid and almost total collapse of industries uh, in, the, in the north of Britain. So there were there were areas in, of, of Manchester, for example, where youth unemployment particularly reached something like 50% for, for a period in the early 80s. So for Kids, particularly in the North, but uh, across Britain, it really started to feel like there was no future in uh, very much the sense that the sex pistols had pointed to five or six years earlier in anarchy in the UK, that um, uh, all, all, all the youth could expect was uh, chaos and um, and uh, n- no expectations. So that's the, the, uh, the starting point for the book, is this, this moment where uh, the fascist groove thing, as, the, uh, as Heaven 17 said, it was on the move. It was on the rise, uh, both in the UK with Thatcher and with the, the recent election of Ronald Reagan in the United States. And it didn't seem to give a damn. It just did not seem to give a damn for youth. Well, it didn't give a damn for youth. So that's where we begin.
2: So as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these songs share generally the same kind of messaging within this. And you brought up Heaven 17's uh, We Don't Need This Fascist Groove thing released that same um, time period. I want to get a sense of how did the aesthetics um, – how these aesthetic musical aesthetics were influenced by the politics, because you write extensively just looking through the playlist and the context in which you explore them. There were considerable differences in the aesthetics and not every artist aligned with groups like heaven 17, there was an attitude of artists outside the pop mainstream. And I wanted to get a sense of how those politics informed the aesthetics and that kind of difference in approach and even in some cases just you know general cultural
1: aggression all right that doesn't feel like a a short answer question uh are you are you interested in why for example um bands in say sheffield uh latched onto electronic music rather than, than punk as a way to, to think about what music should become. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so yes, let's approach it this way. <laughs> um, if, if punk in its first flush in 76, 70s, 70, well, 76 was, uh, a c- space clearing gesture, um, uh, an attempt to set the music industry aside and in clear a space where the kids could do their own thing, and make their own sound, where uh, the establishment uh, was not needed because uh, proficiency and excellence uh, and marketability were, were not required. By uh, the end of the 70s, that initial impulse to create something new and untrammeled by commodity culture, uh, untrammeled by uh, business had started to become uniform. It had started to become a, uh, a kind of establishment of its own. I'm going to regret saying that because, um, uh, uh, It was punk never never got fixed, but it had become a bit predictable. And for some kids, it started to look it started to look conservative. Um, In some ways, the whole business of uh, guitars and drums was just too backwards-looking, too much of a revival uh, of nineteen sixties garage rock, same. So for bands like Heaven 17, uh, the possibilities uh, created by electronic music were very much the possibilities that punk was hoping to realize in its first flush. The uh, You don't need to be a trained musician. You don't need uh, a... Uh, huge studio with a huge budget to, to make music. You can create your own music uh, with a little bit of inventiveness. Um, the Cocteau Twins, not the Cocteau Twins, um, Cabaret Voltaire, uh, built their own uh, electronics to, to make their music. All very do-it-yourself. And um, uh, for Heaven 17, uh, and before that for the Human League, the, the possibility represented by electronic music was something that looked forward something that, that was bringing something entirely new and uh, untamed uh, into popular music so <laughs> I'm not sure if this is a terribly good answer to your question but this is one I've got at the moment which is that if uh, if we want to sort of map The sound of popular music onto um, onto the politics, uh, the the politics of the sound was its newness. You see that not just in the futurism of uh, synth pop, but in um, uh, even in uh, sorry, uh, all, all of the stuff that gets bagged together as post punk. All of it can be seen as a as a constant attempt to create uh, new spaces, to carve out uh, new blank spaces uh, that might actually uh, point to a future.
2: So I think that was a very uh, interesting answer, and and I think you answered it really well. And I wanted to ask that last question because of a really fascinating quote from your book in which you quote political historian John Street, in which he says, whether pop music is banal or brilliant, it is political because it affects or reflects the way people behave. What it affects are the politics of the everyday. And I want to get a sense of what your thoughts are on that and whether when you were going through the book, any kind of preconceptions you had were challenged or even changed as you were going through the process of writing it.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. The um, I inserted John Street there partly Um, because he's talking about something that I don't do in the book. Um, Because what I'm doing is looking at this from a very high level and kind of picking bits and pieces, really, from uh, a a variety of subcultures, uh, from a variety of scenes, and sort of sewing them together in a very tentative sort of way into a, uh, a quilted exactly the wrong analogy a quilted history of um thatcher's britain what i'm not doing is looking at the way music in the context of a particular scene of a particular um, moment a particular time and place um uh, ma- makes its meaning within that subculture uh, i brought street in there because I recognize that this, this is something that is missing from the book. Um, I, if this were a history of the music itself, it would be a really serious omission. Um, and certainly when I teach music and politics, I teach, I'm teaching a, a course on music and politics at the moment. We're deeply concerned with the ways in which, um, Popular music informs, as Street says, the politics of daily life. Um, uh, but in this particular book, I'm much more concerned with how music comments on uh, Big P politics.
2: So, in your book, you acknowledge that Thatcher took control of a country that had already been going her way for a few years, which resulted in poor education standards and significant unemployment. And this becomes the basis for blaming immigrants and whoever else for these grievances and just even today as an american there's a there's a mirror to that where you know Trump gets blamed for a for the, being the genesis of a lot of social ills in America, but those were already kind of underlying, and he just kind of validated those viewpoints so i I understood that conceptually um you know that way. So with Thatcher, this is during the 70s, as punk is getting more ground in the culture. Um, Who were some of those artists during that time before Thatcher's premiership, and how were they addressing these issues through their music before her ascent uh, to
1: that premiership? Sure. Okay. So, yeah, Thatcher doesn't uh, uh, become prime minister until 1979. So really, pretty much everything we think of as first-wave punk happens before Thatcher and is not a reaction to Thatcher herself. In many ways, uh, the Sex Pistols are reacting uh, to uh, issues and situations that would become characteristic of Thatcher's Britain, um, particularly um, uh, commodity culture and uh, the lack of uh, r- real opportunities. Uh, When the Clash write about career opportunities in what '77, um, they're very much, in some ways, they're very much anticipating uh, the uh, the songs that appear in large numbers in the early '80s about employment and the lack of it. Um, But in in career opportunities, uh, I think I I mentioned this in the book. um, The Clash. complaining not so much about the lack of jobs available to them they're complaining about the kinds of jobs available to them Uh, they don't want to work making tea for the BBC they don't want to be in the army or the air force they don't don't want to be cops, they don't want any of these um, uh, office jobs or factory jobs available to, to working class kids so uh, in in some ways, the, the Sex Pistols, The Clash, uh, Chelsea, um, all of these other first-wave punk bands are responding to stuff that would become worse under Thatcher, but they're also responding to um, social conditions that Thatcher herself was a response to. Uh, I, I, I put this a little um, polemically in the book, um, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person to, to, to point this out. Um, Matthew Wolsey, uh, uh, sorry, Matt, Matt, Matt Wally, uh, points out the same thing, that in many ways, the Sex Pistols were saying the same kinds of things that Thatcher was saying about society in the 70s, that it was... Uh, stuck, uh, that there were no opportunities, that uh, society had kind of run its course and needed to be blown up. So um, uh, although Thatcher became sort of the flashpoint for political commentary and pop after 79, correctly so, she she really... uh was the the focus of um well she gave her name to thatcherism right um e- even though uh, this book by virtue of of making it a history of thatcher's britain kind of perpetuates the idea that, that this was all about thatcher um in many ways the um the politicization of pop had had already started before thatcher took took power in 79
2: so this economic disparity it continues uh during the 80s and it polarizes southern england which you write was rather prosperous um from the north and scotland and wales which were not um can you tell us about some of the artists and groups who were from those communities that were most impacted by that disparity and what they were contributing to this aesthetic and cultural dialogue about the economic struggles they were facing.
1: Sure. Uh, I might as well take the opportunity here to, hear to, to uh, uh, give my editor a shout-out. Um, Ramsey uh, who uh, spotted this book uh, and, and uh, figured it could be actually turned into to something that people would read, Uh, He was the lead singer and writer for a punk band called Political Asylum uh, in Sterling in the mid-80s, up to the late 80s. And um, uh, that band was in some ways connected to the um, what was called a a Um, narco-punk. Ramsey himself says he never quite figured out why. Uh, except, of course, that uh, he himself was was an affirmed anarchist and um, uh, started uh, an anarchist press out of his his mum's house. So um, I've forgotten what the question was, Bradley.
2: Oh, I was just asking who were some of the artists and groups from those areas um, that you write about in your book that – were impacted by that economic disparity and put that into their music.
1: Oh, well, they, uh, okay. That makes sense of my answer. Thank you. Uh, yes. Um, the, the, the bands that I, I knew least about in some ways coming into this project were bands like Ramsey's, um, uh, uh political asylum, um, the anarcho-punk scene was something I was certainly not part of and only very peripherally aware of um, in in, in the 1980s. Um, But bands like uh, Political Asylum, like uh, Cross and Poison Girls and uh, Conflict, um, uh, their aesthetic was conceived of explicitly As a response to uh, Thatcher's very conservative, socially conservative, uh, as well as politically conservative uh, vision of Britain. Also, a response to her essentially fascistic uh, sense of uh, Britishness. Um, Although economically liberal, politically, Structurally, socially, her instinct was to centralize everything, to centralize power uh, in uh, Westminster. And uh, anarcho-punk can be seen as a pretty direct um, aesthetic response to that centralization, um, a, a a spreading, a de- democratization of uh, production of of creation.
2: So Thatcher was a proponent of a concept called popular capitalism, uh, which was something that a lot of bands oppose. Can you tell us more about what popular capitalism was and its impact?
1: Yeah, the term popular capitalism uh, kind of captures a couple of related things. Um, The biggest part of it was the, um, Uh, denationalization, the privatization of uh, Britain's aerospace industry, um, uh, the uh, steel industry, and, and so on and so forth. And it was sold to the British public as their opportunity to own parts of these privatized companies. In other, uh, in other words, it was straightforwardly selling off the Commonwealth of the of the British nation um, uh, and selling it to those middle class, upper middle class people who could afford a piece of it. So a straightforward redistribution of wealth. And this was part of what was 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 meant by popular capitalism. The other part of it Uh, was the selling off of the nation's stock of council housing. Uh, And again, this this meant selling it off uh, to uh, those people in council housing who could afford to to purchase their council houses, um, vastly reducing the available stock of of council housing, meaning that those at the very bottom of the economic pile uh, were left with uh, accommodation that could not be sold because it was so terrible. Um, the, the third part of this was a series of uh, deregulations um, that expanded the opportunities uh, the city had, um, the, the financial sector had, uh, to, to make a quick buck. Broadly, the impact of what Thatcher sold as popular capitalism was uh, a wider and wider disparity between the haves and the have-nots. The haves uh, predominantly being in the South, the have-nots predominantly being in the North. One of the um, symbolic key figures of this popular capitalism was the character Loads of Money, created by the comedian Harry Enfield. He was a uh, the character he created was this suddenly affluent plasterer uh, from that's, that's the south of England, making a fortune renovating the houses of people who had got rich off Thatcher's uh, financial deregulation and. Uh, selling off of, of the, the national, the commonwealth of the nation. And uh, loads of money, his catchphrase was, you know, shut your mouth and look at me, wad. And he would taunt uh, people from the north with this wad of cash that he had. Uh, he's most The character is most famous for the single um, uh, Doing Up the House. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price, line
2: So this popular capitalism thing was very interesting to me because a lot of bands were critical of it and its commercial influence, while some were not bothered. Um, Throbbing Gristle developed it as like a concept for parody, but other bands like ABC kind of adopted and embraced this almost performance art element as a multinational corporation. And I, you know, for a lot of us who may be younger and, and don't necessarily remember the 80s, can you tell us about that multinational corporation approach that some pop artists took?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Heaven 17, uh, the the band who give this book its title, uh, they themselves, their first album uh, was called uh, Penthouse and Pavement. And the cover of the album features the members of the band uh, doing business. They're making music. They're shaking hands. They're on the phone. They're not just a band. They're a corporation uh, making music and selling it. And for Heaven 17, this was mostly a, a sort of punk gesture of taking on the music business and beating it at its own game. Um, Putting on suits, uh, being business people, and uh, not relying on uh, the the, uh, major record labels to get it done for you. For uh, bands like uh, ABC, I think you pointed to, uh, aesthetically, uh, they... uh, 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 Aesthetically, what they were trying to do was also in some ways a bit of a punk gesture, trying to make something uh, glamorous and glossy almost out of bits of uh, broken metal and uh, leftovers. Uh, Their their big album, Lexicon of Love, um, sounds enormous. It sounds like it it cost a billion dollars, but it was actually done fairly cheaply uh, using pretty rudimentary techniques, and they just managed to make something uh, uh, huge and overblown uh, out of um, uh, out of not much. Uh, so there's um, uh, that kind of approach. There's there's uh, Heaven Seventeen with this sort of ironic approach to the to the idea of the. Uh, pop band as business, then you get um, uh, Sieg Sieg Sputnik doing the same sort of thing, but taking it much, much further. Um, uh, they actually sold advertising space between the tracks of their first album. They didn't get many takers, uh, but that, uh, this gesture of the, the full self Reflexive commercialization And commodification of their own music And the band's Aesthetic um, their, their costuming And their album design Was so lurid So brash uh, So obviously Artificial And so obviously designed to be sold That even in that There's this this kind of space clearing gesture The, the, the sheer Irony of um, uh, selling something that is um, offering itself as an anti-commodity while desperately wanting to to be sold as a commodity. Um, Both Sieg Sieg Sputnik and Heaven 17 found out fairly quickly that there's a limited return on that kind of irony, uh, you, 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 really can't beat business at its own business. Um, both wound up, uh, becoming increasingly, uh, empty in their, uh, a, attempts to, to sell themselves as anti-commodity.
2: What's really kind of funny and just kind of really ironic is i saw heaven 17 last year in chicago and park west um and it was a really fantastic entertaining show and i i can't imagine what bands like heaven 17 or abc in this kind of like pop multinational corporation aesthetic would have thought of their contemporaries who who have gone on to let's say you two doing a residency for a new venue in vegas of all places you know it's 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 really kind of funny just how that whole dynamic has just kind of evolved and you know kudos to them for just still having so much fun with that
1: it is amazing how many of the bands that i mention in this book are still around and not just that the that the, the bands that have made a conventional music industry career out of it sort of following in the muddy footprints of the, the Rolling Stones. Um, that are not, not just bands who are on a perpetual greatest hits tour, but bands who are still out there working. Um, Oi Polloi, the Angelic Upstarts, um, uh, Uh, Cockney rejects, sub subhumans, all all of these these uh, bands that were never going to become the Rolling Stones, who are still out there, still making politically committed music, still writing new stuff, still engaging new audiences, still converting the young uh, in in exactly the way that that uh, Joe Strummer converted me as a as a kid, Um, and it it's it's inspiring. even even bands uh who do appear to be part of the machinery, um, and you, you mentioned U2, and you you know this from writing about U2. Um places where they did engage with politics in, in the eighties and into the nineties, it's still relevant. Uh I I think you, you wrote a bit about them uh planning a a couple of shows around the 30th anniversary, I suppose, of the Joshua Tree and realizing that the album was still, or again, so relevant politically that they actually needed to to tour behind it for a bit and and really revisit those songs because they still had something to say. And I think that's the, the thing that surprised me most writing this book was i I started it thinking I was just writing about that moment that that moment was extraordinary and um the 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 stuff that the bands were responding to was very much of that moment and as they kept as I was writing the thing uh, it just kept getting in a fairly depressing way more and more immediately relevant uh, more and more obvious that the exactly the kinds of uh, fascistic, um, uh, anti-democratic, uh, anti-social things that these bands were responding to in the 80s are very much at the forefront again. Uh, you 2 can see it. Uh, the subhumans can see it. Oipoloi <laughs> can see it. Um, uh, so, yes, it's, um, uh, it's not just that these, these bands are, are out there on a perpetual nostalgia tour. Uh, it's that they still have something to say and they still have something important to say.
2: Absolutely. And that recontextualization of that art. And thank you for mentioning my book, even though we're here to talk about yours. Um, (laughs) I I know. Thank you for at least looking into it. That's much appreciated. Um, That that thing that, that it's very important because there are a lot of parallels between the 1980s and today and reading through your book that comes through and it's rather alarming. Um, you you kind of briefly mentioned a few controversies um, that Thatcher experienced during her premiership, such as the Falkland War, uh, the miners' strike, and specifically, you know what kind of stands out to me is how similar Thatcher's anti-immigrant rhetoric and her and her anti-labor rhetoric, you know, is reverberating. Even now, you know, especially in the U.S. where I am, um, this is this is also seen in other issues as well, such as the disarray caused by Brexit. Do you think something akin to Thatcherism is returning, or
1: could return? Well, I think it has returned. I, I think in in a number of very uh, significant ways, Britain never stopped being Thatcher's Britain. Um, the Conservatives did finally lose to the Labour Party in 97. Uh, but at that point, it was a Labour Party which, through the 1980s, had, had seemingly made itself unelectable by being genuinely socialist, uh, reinvented itself in the 90s as New Labour, uh, which was very much to say that its relationship to the Conservative Party was the same relationship as. Coke and New Coke—it's the same thing. Um, the the Labour Party that was elected in ninety seven was virtually indistinguishable from the Conservative Party it it, it replaced. So the you know, the neoliberal economic policies, the uh, anti social social policies, uh, the uh, ongoing assault on the welfare state, the privatization of everything and everybody. This just continued unchanged through the 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 years of labor government at the end of the nineties and into the two thousands. And with the eruption, the the oh, was, I, I want some unpleasant word to describe the arrival of Boris Johnson. Um but with, with the arrival of Boris Johnson, uh any uh any sense that Britain had moved on from Thatcher was was obliterated. Uh, he he the, the same kind of uh, conservatism built around uh, a highly charismatic and f- fundamentally evil character. Um, so no, I, I I don't think we're heading for a new wave of Thatcherism. I think we've been in it for the last forty years. Uh, it's just conceivably possible in the UK, at least, that we might see um, an alternative to it. it. It is just just barely conceivable that a Labour Party uh, with some kind of socialist principles uh, might <laughs> – I'm, I'm so uh, uh, unpersuaded by what I'm about to say uh, – uh, might return uh, – to, to power in Britain. Um, uh, in the United States, I'm, I'm, I'm really, that's, it's a whole other, whole other thing, but, uh, certainly if the United States could get back to the horror of the Reagan years and just be that badly off, uh, I, I, I think that would be an improvement.
2: Oh, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting, um, that's really fun. That's very interesting and funny. I I completely understand that. Um, so in, in, in this parallels aren't just seen within the politics as well, but also in terms of culture and, and even music. In those controversies, you write about musical responses to that, such as Soul Deep being a response to the minor strike that um, was supporting the women against pit closures. You also have the Kill the Police Bill single, and even now, 40 years later, we're seeing this increased like weaponization of police as a force above being a service. Um, they look like the military in a lot of ways. Um, it's rather, rather frightening. And can you just kind of just talk about some of those songs as maybe like things that we couldn't, we could actually hear now with new music.
1: Well, the, um, ranking Anne's uh song uh kill the police bill is, is a is a really good one to pick on um the the kinds of issues she's pointing to there uh, as being emergent in the uk uh, are are rampant now uh, exactly the kinds of uh overpowered police force um the uh the militarization of the police force, uh, the fact that the police force is uh, conceived of as a force rather than a service, um, uh, these are all, you know, obviously uh, uh, relevant uh, now. Uh, It's not as if she was pointing to new problems with policing in the UK, even at the time. Uh, the West Indian community through the late 60s uh, through the 70s uh, was the subject of more or less incessant police harassment. And um, uh, when Ranking Anne uh, wrote about it in 80, 84, I think it's 84, uh, with the Kill the Police bill, um, what she was seeing was an intensification of a kind of policing that had already uh, caused riots in the in 76 and 81 um, and would cause riots again uh, later in the decade so um, yes that's a, a very good example of a of uh, a song addressing something that just hasn't changed, or if it has changed, has simply become worse. Um,
2: The fact that some of these things are becoming worse um, leaves me to ask something that you write about in your book, in which some historians suggest that Thatcher's policies were necessary to correct economic issues from the 70s, and then we see the fallout from that. What is your take on these historians who are vindicating Thatcher or applying that kind of like, um, you know, rose colored glasses um, to that history?
1: In some ways, uh, looking at it from a very great height, um, it's almost inevitable. Uh, Everything gets uh, softened. The edges get knocked off things. Uh, we wind up using short forms for for historical moments, and from what is now a, a, a fair distance, it's easy to understand why what historians see is a, a kind of uh, grand sweep, but what's getting swept away is the real experiences of millions of people who are negatively affected by Thatcher's policies. Um, I saw an episode of oh, was it The Crown recently. I watched it because it was the episode about the 1980s, about Thatcher, and was just sort of stunned by the reinvention of Thatcher as oh, some kind of um, plucky... Lower middle class, semi-feminist uh, icon, kind of strong woman standing up against a masculinist uh, establishment and standing her ground. And uh, in that episode of The Crown, th- th- there was no miners' strike. It it just, it it, it's, it it vanished from that version of of Thatcher. Um, And the Falklands War was um, her being plucky. And to me, a really bizarre and kind of horrifying reinvention of Thatcher, uh, who, in my recollection, uh, represented a violent assault on most of what was good about uh, Britain um, uh, being reinvented as someone who somehow uh, saved Britain, despite the evidence that that things have got just progressively shittier over the last 40 years, uh, precisely because of the kinds of policies that dismantled um, uh, not just the economy, but dismantled the social fabric
2: that's a that's a really important outlook um that kind of revisioning that you talk about in the crown i remember like a decade or so ago there was that film the iron lady starring meryl streep and a friend of mine um refused to see it and they had said how fucking dare they make um, thatcher hot
1: mhm
2: <laughs> and it's it's that kind of
1: same thing really you know yeah well okay so in fairness to thatcher i God, I, that's not a sentence I say very often. Um, in fairness to Thatcher, um, uh, the producers of that film w- were not the, the first people to imagine uh, Thatcher being hot. Um, uh, uh, Mitterrand, the, the French uh, prime minister, um, uh, he, he, he he was quite taken with her. I think Reagan was quite taken with her. Um, there was a lot of commentary at the time uh, ab- ab- about her being in in some ways, sexy, um, and this this speaks to a whole range of uh, issues that I don't address in the book um, because I'm not trying to be fair to Thatcher and I'm I'm not I'm not trying to recuperate her anyway. and I'm not trying to acknowledge any of the challenges that she might personally have faced as a as a woman in British politics um, or a woman in British society. Um, and I mean, n- nobody ever commented on, you know, whether Jim Callahan or Ted Heath or Harold Wilson was sexy or not. That's not something they had to confront. Um, but uh, no, uh, it it certainly doesn't uh, suit uh, my uh, highly polemical and unreasonable um, depiction of of Thatcher for anyone to have found her on any level attractive.
2: Well, no, certainly your, your, your book is very clear about that and rightfully so, but it does beg to ask questions about how much sexism played a role in critiquing Thatcher in specifically, in other words, do you think that if the same disastrous policies had come from a man in power, that we would have seen less of a critical response from musicians?
1: That's an extremely good question. And I, I wish I could claim to have given that some serious thought. Um, uh, I, I do. Um, the, the fact that Reagan was enacting some of the same policies in the United States and elicited some of the same kinds of responses uh, in popular music does does suggest that um, uh, it, it wasn't a question of Thatcher's gender. Um, as we said earlier, the, the, the willingness of popular music to comment on politics... Uh, it was already in motion and strongly in motion before Thatcher uh, came to power. Um, the the Jam uh, uh, spoke bitterly to Jim Callaghan, the leader of the uh, Labour Party, long before uh, Paul Weller uh, moved to the left and became a critic of Thatcher. So um, that's not to say that the wasn't a fair deal of pretty vile sexism in the way thatcher was addressed by popular music uh, but i i don't think a male politician doing the same things would have uh received less criticism per se
2: My motivation for asking that question wasn't necessarily for just an arbitrary presentism kind of outlook. I wanted to ask that last question because you write that people wrote these songs because Thatcher was so closely identified with the policies of her government and the callous way in which she implemented those policies. So I want to get a sense of why was this less so for other prime ministers? Was it purely just the personality or just the close identification?
1: Uh, i'm gonna I'm gonna bracket off the 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 question of how much of it had to do with her being a woman because you are absolutely right that this is this was a part of it um but the reason she was so strongly identified with the policies uh is because they were her policies even though thatcherism um uh contained um I- ideas uh, that belong to uh, uh, any number of conservative thinkers um, Thatcher sold herself as a brand right she she was really the first British politician first well certainly the first British prime minister uh, who in the way that has now become commonplace sold herself as a uh, a brand as as a uh, media icon uh, and her party became her party. Um, it, it's, it always, it's at this point it's kind of difficult to reconstruct what politics looked like before Thatcher uh, opened the, the door for demagogues like uh, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. Uh, we, we got so used to the idea that parties are now led by larger than life personalities that uh, it's difficult to look back and and see that what Thatcher was doing at least in British politics was something quite new um, offering a a media personality that was clear and easily defined and um uh, a short form for the government's entire political platform. So
2: it's been several decades since she exited office, and she's been dead for about a decade well, now. That sounds a little strong. It's been several decades since she exited office, and she passed away about a decade ago. What are some songs you would put on playlists for some of the prime ministers that have come along since Thatcher? <laughs>
1: well there's not much um as i said say at the beginning of the book nobody ever wrote songs about um uh, ted heath or harold wilson or jim callahan nobody nobody's written wrote songs about gordon brown or 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 blair um but um there, there were there were signs that if he'd stuck around, Boris Johnson uh, might have inspired something like the the, the flood of um, music that, that Thatcher did. Um, Both Wally, uh, formerly of Chumbawamba, and his choral group, uh, the Commoners Choir, uh, they released a, a, a song about... Um, Boris Johnson's head on a stick um, playing on the, the the fact that Boris Johnson's hair looks like a mop um, uh, there's a uh, a band uh, strictly speaking a comedy band a band called, anyway, they're called the Cunts, spelt with a K um, they, they very nearly managed a Christmas number one a couple of years ago uh, with uh, a song whose title and only line uh, was uh, "Boris Johnson is a fucking cunt," so the, the, not not you know particularly profound political commentary, but some sign that if if he'd managed to stick around, and there was a danger he was going to, that uh, if Boris Johnson had stuck around, um, he too would have become that this the subject uh, of. Um, uh, popular music political commentary. So
2: what you're telling me is that we should not expect Pete Wiley to come out with the day that Theresa May dies. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. Uh,
1: I, I think it's very unlikely that, um, uh, that any of the last uh, half dozen prime ministers who seem to come and go weekly uh, is, is going to inspire anything uh, more than a very short Wikipedia entry.
2: Well, Hugh, this was a fantastic conversation, and I had a lot of fun. Um, This book is incredibly impressive with a very fantastic concept. It's a brilliant uh, work, and I think you should be incredibly proud, and I really appreciate your time in joining
1: me today. Thank you so much. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you.
2: My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Hugh Hodges. His latest book is the Fascist Groove Thing, a history of Thatcher's Britain in 21 mixtapes, and is published by PM Press. 18- plus.